Why don't you grab your Bibles and stand as we read the remainder of, well, not all of John chapter 3, but the remainder of this part 2. And we'll have one more section in John 3. I've been very excited to preach John 3, uh, 3 the last couple of weeks. Um, you, all, you will all recognize one of these verses that we're about to read. Probably been the most quoted verse in the history of the church. But pick it up with me, John chapter 3, with verse 13. I know we read verse 13 last week, but just as a transitional verse. Verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. This is the name Jesus used of himself more than any other name, Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the, Jesus uses it again, Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most of you can quote this next verse. Yeah. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. We just prayed for revival. He did not send His Son to condemn America but that America might be saved. Amen? Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not condemned. Praise the Lord if you have believed in Him. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for sending Jesus to live a sinless life, to preach this message that we're reading right here in John 3, and then to go on and fulfill it by suffering and dying and then conquering sin, death, Satan, and hell by raising from the dead. Lord, I pray that anyone watching online, anyone in this room that has heard the gospel but has never come to the gospel, never had the gospel change and transform them into a new creation, today would be the day of their salvation. Those of us that know the gospel, Lord, if it's become less than amazing to us, revive to us the power and the love that Jesus is displaying here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's one thing in life to know what we need, but that's not exactly the same as knowing how to receive it. Knowing what, to, what we need, but not exactly the same as knowing how to receive it. This is true of many things, but especially true and imperative when it comes to our salvation. Picking up from where we left off last Sunday, Nicodemus has learned that he needs a new birth. He learned that last week. Jesus said, you must be born again. His soul needs to be reborn from above. He needs the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to do an inward work of being born again. 
And by the way, just as you're born once physically, this call to be born once spiritually is a one-time deal as well. You're born from mom one time. You'll be born of the Spirit one time. Make sense? You have a physical birth, but if God saves you and you're born again, you have one rebirth. Now you have many refreshings in your life daily, the mercies of God, but one reborn. You're not saved again and saved again and resaved. I've been born again 12 times. You'll meet people in the South that have at least three born-again experiences or things like that. You know, but you don't. You don't keep getting saved, born again, over and over and over again. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This happens once. And then the soul that's been saved by grace, God's grace, just as a newborn does grow. You have to grow. have to mature. And we grow as a baby with the love and supply of a mother. It has to be someone pouring into our life. And how does this happen spiritually? How is the soul saved and transformed? How does Nicodemus appropriate what Jesus is telling him that he needs? He's saying, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is probably saying, how? You're telling me I need this, but how? That's where Jesus comes in. He not only expresses and, and proclaims our need, but he's the eternal solution to our need. He says, this is what you need, and I am the way. He not only identifies our dilemma, but he alone solves it. But we're going to have to hear him. We're going to have to agree with him. We're going to have to believe in him in our hearts for the gift of salvation. We can receive it, but we're going to have to hear it, agree, and believe. And that's the express design and will of God the Father. And salvation, it can't be earned, can it? If it could be earned, Nicodemus had a lot of religious works. He should have been at the top of the list. One of the 70 religious rulers of Israel. He should have been applauded by Jesus for all of his works. But Jesus didn't applaud him, he rebuked him. Because he loved him, he said, you need to know where you're really at. No, Nicodemus needs, and we all need, the sacrifice of the Son sent from the Father. The greatest gift of love and mercy the world has ever seen. It's not even close. You know, today's the Super Bowl. Does anyone know that? I know, I actually like football. You guys know that. I like it more than I wish I did sometimes. But I mean... I do like football, but where the Super Bowl ranks in important things in the history of the world is it's got to be like number one trillion in important things that have ever happened. I know we make it important, but it's, it's not important. You guys understand that, right? In the history of mankind, I mean, the cross is the most important thing. It's not even close, that and the, and the empty tomb. And everything else is like a distant second and then... The Super Bowl would be like number 10 trillion or something like that, as far as important things. We'll make it really important. And again, we make important things, we make not important things uh, to be important. But this news that we're looking at today is of the utmost importance. Like bigger than the universe importance. 
Because someday that Jesus will scroll, he'll roll up the whole universe. Why? Because those nail-pierced hands, he owns it all. This is of far greater importance. The greatest act of love and mercy the world has ever seen, yet millions, millions, millions are unaware or uninterested in this gift. Isn't that amazing? I did the same thing. 25 years, I just didn't care until I got saved. 25 years, I thought whatever I was doing was more important than the gospel. Even to this day, I can't even comprehend how wrong I was. I just know I was off the charts wrong. If you're taking notes this morning, you see the title of our time in the Word this morning. For God so loved the world, the cross, the Son, and salvation. I want to start off looking immediately at what Jesus references here, although he doesn't use the word cross. It's exactly what he's talking about. If you're taking notes, first thing we want to look at, look at this morning is the necessity, the necessity of the cross. Where he says, no one has ascended from heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus says in another place, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Again, each time he says things like this, or if I be lifted up, he's referencing a Roman cross. Sometimes he actually says that. Other times he just, if I'm lifted up and we now know, and to this day we no longer put Jesus on a cross, but we lift him up for the world to see. We lift up the gospel, which is a pointing people to the cross, because he had lifted himself up once on the cross. But amazing, isn't it? No matter how many times that you've considered it, that Jesus spoke the entire universe into existence. Uh, go back to John chapter 1. Remember John 1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. John 1 verses 1 through 3. It's amazing that the very one who spoke the universe into existence left his throne to come to this fallen earth. How many of you would just say, if you were a billionaire, I'd say, I'd give it all up tomorrow and just become dirt poor living on the ground begging for food. That would be a bad kind of parallel to what Jesus did to come to this earth. And most of us would not be willing to do it, much less die. But not just that Jesus would come and live a poor life, which he did. He said he had no place to lay his head. And not just to live on this dusty fallen earth and sweat and have sleepless nights and have difficulty and people hate him and all this stuff. Not just to do all that, and not just to live and go through that and just die at the end of an old age. And not just to die, but to die one of the most cruel, heartless, torturous deaths you could possibly die on a Roman cross. One of the most evil things devised by mankind. Can you tell, when people say, well, I don't think there is such a thing as evil and sin. Have you not studied history? Some of the evil things mankind has devised, and Jesus endured all of that, but he left his throne in heaven to come specifically to do this. Not any kind of surprise. None of it was a surprise. It's why he came. He came to shed his blood to be the sacrificial lamb that John the Baptist proclaimed him to be. And all of this was actually foreordained in the 
complete wisdom of the Godhead, Revelation 13, 8, we see the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It obviously did not happen before the foundation of the world, but in God's outside of time, it did or it was good as done. The road to the cross was always in the foreknowledge of God, and the path to Jerusalem started in the the path to Jerusalem started in the Garden of Eden. That's where the path started. We put him on that path, didn't we? We put him on that path because of our sin. And Jesus is informing Nicodemus. All those times you read about Moses lifting up the bronze serpent, you, you guarantee Nicodemus, remember there was no New Testament when Nicodemus is having this. The New Testament comes after Jesus ascends, then the apostles and the writers write the New Testament. All they had was Genesis through Malachi, the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures, the Law and the Prophets. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, all those times you read about Moses lifting up the bronze serpent on a pole to save the people from their sin of idolatry and complaining against God and their rebellion and certain death because they were being bitten by these fiery serpents. He says, all the time that you've read that, it was a picture pointing to the Messiah. It was pointing to me. Every time you read about Moses lifting up the serpent, it was pointing to me, the Lamb of God that would be hoisted up in like manner. Why? Because the same reason of what took place in the wilderness is what Jesus is showing on a macro scale for the world. He came. The serpent was to deal with sin and death. Jesus being lifted on the cross is to deal with what? Sin and death but with a far greater and expanded purpose. You see, back in Numbers chapter 21, there in the wilderness, the people had spoke out against God. They spoke out against Moses. They grumbled. They complained. They even called the bread of heaven manna. They called it worthless. By the way, that was a foreshadow too, that people would call the bread come down from heaven worthless. That was a foreshadow that people today, many of them think Jesus is worthless. They couldn't be more wrong, but it was a foreshadow. Judgment fell. God had had enough of it, of them complaining against Moses, complaining against God, complaining about what they were eating, the fact that they were even eating it all and had water in the wilderness. And God said, that's it. I'm setting fiery serpents. They just came out of nowhere in the wilderness. They just started biting the people. In the midst of judgment, he sent a way out. Then he gave mercy. He said, I'll give you a way out. And he had Moses put this serpent up on a bronze, uh, bronze serpent on a pole and lift it up. And people had to look to the serpent and they would live. And Jesus is saying, every time you read that, that was about me. I got a little comparison up here you can see for yourself. The comparison of the bronze serpent and the cross. So the bronze serpent... If you believe what Moses said, you look to the uplifted pole and you would live and you would escape the immediate death because you were bit by these serpents, you would be dead in no time. The venom would go into your system and you would fall dead immediately. But the cross, Jesus said, this is not just saving you from immediate death, this is saving you from eternal death. Not just to be bit by a serpent and die, but that you would spend eternity in the lake of fire 
this, you look to me, and I'll save you from, because we're all going to die physically. He's like, no, this is, this is saving you from eternal death, which the bronze serpent couldn't, change, couldn't save you from eternal death. It was a foreshadow. It was a type. And just as the serpent was a picture of sin and the consequence of sin, so Christ would take on the sins of the world, wouldn't he? All the sins of humanity went on Jesus that day. Second Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And all of this could only be accomplished if the Son of Man was lifted up. He had to be nailed to the cross. Colossians 2.14 tells us, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us and was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Let's stop and pray, guys. I just want to pray that God is speaking to those that need to hear this message. Because here's the problem in America. You've heard the gospel eight gazillion times. And you know it but you're not yet known by God because you've not really come to saving faith. There's many people that haven't. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that you would uh, illuminate the message of the gospel. Lord, you would prick hearts, open eyes. And those of us that know you, Lord, we would treasure this more. We ask it in your name. Amen. This was the mission of Jesus. It's why he came. And just as Nicodemus and all of us, just as he said to Nicodemus, that we all must, must be born again to go back to last week's section. It's not a pretty good suggestion. Hey, if you've got time, here's an idea for you. No, you must be born again. And so Jesus must be lifted up. Look at verse 7 in your Bibles. Go back to last week's passage. Verse 7, Jesus says, you must be born again. But here he says, same word, same Greek word, means it is necessary in reference to a requirement, a necessary of law and commandment. You must be born again, and he must be lifted up. If he's not lifted up, you can't be born again. If he is lifted up, you can be born again. Must be born again, must be lifted up. Same exact Greek word. And Jesus, every, by the way, every single word Jesus says is landing exactly as he wants it to land. Amen? Every, he wants you to understand that you must and I must. You must be born again, I must die on the cross. He wants Nicodemus to know. Aren't you glad that Jesus' part is way harder than our part? Ours is accepting, his is providing. But many people still say, I don't want it. I don't want to be born again. I don't care that you did that for me. I don't want to understand it. But Nicodemus wanted to understand it, and I hope that you do too. John Christendom said, by the cross, we know the gravity of sin and the greatness of God's love toward us. The cross, as Jesus lifted up on the cross, it is a testament to two things. One, sin is that bad. It would keep us separated from God for all eternity, but Jesus' blood and death is that full of his love and that necessary 
the gravity of sin and the greatness of God's love. And to reject or ignore what Christ has proclaimed and provided is to reject God's love. Look at that. Let's look at our second point this morning. The love expressed in the Son. Jesus goes on after he says that the serpent must be lifted, uh, just as the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man, that whoever believes, the Apostle John uses the word belief more than any of the four Gospels. Believe is a constant theme in this book. And of course it's a constant theme in the Gospel period, but it's a constant theme that we have to believe. And it's not just believe it up here, it's a heart level belief. Whatever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, there it is again, in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know that all of what Jesus has said to Nicodemus, all he's done in his ministry thus far, all he will go on to do, all the suffering of the cross can be described in one word, love. Everything Jesus has already done, everything he says he's going to do, everything he absolutely will do can all be described in one word, love. Boy, next week is Valentine's. We use the word love in America. We do not really understand what the word means as it relates to the love of God. It's interesting that this world just as everything about Jesus could be described in that one word, love, everything in this world can be described by one word, too. You want to know what it is? Lust. Everything in the world can be described with that word, lust. This same Apostle John, who recorded Nicodemus' nighttime, middle-of-the-night encounter with Jesus, he also contrasts the lust of this world to the love of God in his epistle, 1 John. Look at 1 John, verse, uh, 1 John chapter 2, 16 and 17. This is what John writes. Same apostle, because John writes John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, book of Revelation. He says this, for all that is in the world, all means what? All. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. The world's passing away. Everything you see, the lust of this world will vanish. It'll be burned up at some point. The word lust, it means a craving and a longing, and a desire is what, of, of what's forbidden. Adam and Eve, they lusted after the fruit. It's not always in a sexual connotation. John is saying lust is mankind wanting things that God says, that's not good for you. I forbid it. It's selfish. Lust is always selfish. It's always me-centric. It's the total opposite of the nature of God. Lust is of mankind, love is of God. The same epistle of John, the same epistle of 1 John, uh, 1 John 4, 8, you guys have probably heard this verse. It's actually said twice in that chapter. These words are said twice in that chapter. God is love. So two times, 1 John chapter 4, God is love. And there are four types of love that are found in the Bible. Just uh, I put them up here on the screen so 
if you're unfamiliar, there's four types of love that are listed in the scriptures. Each of these you can find. Agape is the highest form of love of the four loves. It speaks of benevolence and uh, it's God's affection, goodwill. Now, we're called to have agape love as well, by the way. Christians are called to have agape love for each other. We're called to have this giving, sacrificial, charitable, benevolence type of love for one another. Not withholding, but freely giving, even to the point of sacrificing, loving our neighbor as ourself. Because we'll sacrifice for ourselves. So we're called to have agape love. Then you have phileo, which is the, it's called brotherly love. We're called to have that too, companionship. Love, this uh, phileo should be normative among believers. We should be brothers and sisters in Christ. Should be a friendship kind of love. Anyone like good friends? Uh, in the scriptures, um, Abraham was called the friend of God, right? So we, we, see, we see that kind of love in the scriptures. When we have storage, this is a natural type of love that parents should have for children. Most of you didn't have to be convinced to love your kids, right? God put a natural love for you. And so when you see actually people not loving their children, this is where sin has broken that down. And it's unnatural to hate your own children, despise your parents, things like that. It's a natural thing. God has put it in the heart to, to love family. That family, when it starts to disintegrate, sin is the problem. And then we have eros, which is a physical kind of love. And it's the sensual love, but it's only okay within marriage. Eros, only okay in those bounds. So these are the four kinds of love that we find in the Bible. But God is the personification of agape. He's the only perfect, Jesus is the only perfect personification in human flesh of agape love the world has ever seen. Would you all agree with that? The Apostle Paul might come close, you know, James might come close, John the Baptist might come close as far as our standards, but Jesus is in another stratosphere in the perfection of agape love. And his love, the word agape is the word used in John 3.16. That when it says God so loved the world, it's agape. The highest form, the most pure form, and Jesus is the perfection of agape. Sadly, many that never surrender to Jesus in the end, many that never, I'm talking about people, maybe you're watching online and you've yet to surrender your life to Jesus. Many, if they live their whole life and never surrender to Jesus, they say, nope, don't want Jesus, don't want his agape love. At the end of their life, they would be able to write a verse about themselves. And it would go like this, for I so love myself. Right? Many could write it right now. They still said no to the Lord. They still said no to salvation. Still said no to be born again. I, they could write a verse, I so love myself that I took advantage of others. That I hated others. That I never had time for God. That I lived for my career. That I made a fortune and pampered myself. That I abused others. That I hated others. You see, lust is about getting, keeping, taking, even if by force. That's what the lust of this world isn't. Amen? Why do you think 
Hitler wanted to dominate all over Europe and invade every country. Why do you think Genghis Khan wanted to do it? Why do you think the pharaohs wanted to do it? Why do you think the emperors and the Caesars? And why do you think it's in the heart of people right now today? Hating, striving, fighting, anger. They resist agape love and choose lust. I so love myself. I'm going to do it my own way. Lust is about taking these things, but God's love is about giving. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. That he gave. This perfectly describes the love of God. Romans 5.8 describes it this way. Look at Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his what? Love. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, he didn't wait until we were cleaned up, he came and found me in South Florida, when I was lost and in darkness, he loved me enough to wake me up literally that morning and spiritually that same morning a little later, about two hours later. But God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you and I. I was born in 1969. He died long before I was born. How about you? None of us were alive when Jesus died. When he died... We hadn't yet been born. When we were born, we were sinners, but he had already died for us. And an eternity passed, he was slain what? As we looked at earlier, from the foundation of the earth. Understand that God loves the world. God loves his only begotten son. The son loves the father. And so in the Godhead is this mission of love, right? God loves the world. Jesus loves the father. The Father, Son, the Spirit love to provide a way. The serpent lifted up. The cross lifted up. So in the Godhead is this mission of love. And God, in his great love, sent a loving Savior to express the love of God by sacrificing his own body and blood to cleanse a fallen and undeserving world. No one deserves salvation. An undeserving world. It's full of what? Sin, lust, rejection, rebellion. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I wouldn't have said that, would you? Those would not have been my words. I would have called 10,000 angels. I'd have called every force and I'd smoke them all, God. That's what I would have done. But Jesus' love is so much, it, his love is beyond our comprehension. Of course, if I had done that, I would have been smoked too, because the bottom line, there's none righteous, no not one, only him. All of this. If, though, if we believe, that changes everything, doesn't it? If you say, oh, no, I don't want that, I don't believe that. But if you say, like Nicodemus in the night, maybe, just maybe, I need to hear this. Maybe, just maybe, you're right and I'm wrong. Nicodemus comes around, if we believe, heart-level belief and repentance, we go from death and perishing to life. The cross is enough for the whole world, but hear this, hear this, The cross is enough for the whole world, but did you know it's conditional? 
It's enough for the whole world, but it is conditional. How do we know? Because Jesus says the condition. Whosoever what? Believes. You can't just say, well, it, it covered me. I don't have to believe. It's already covered. No, no. It's conditional. It's enough for everyone, but everyone must come of their own accord. The provision is 100%, but it's only possible by God through Christ. And by the way, the word whoever means anyone. Anyone. Well, what if you lived an entire 99 years of wickedness? Can you be saved in the 100th year? Yes. Anyone. But anyone is also one person at a time. Any one. Each person has Nicodemus had to come by himself, for himself. You and I have to come. In this one world famous verse, in this one world famous verse, Jesus is expressing the entire heart of the gospel in one sentence. The entire heart of the gospel is in this one sentence. There's other facets to the gospel, but I said the entire heart of the gospel is in this one sentence. This is enough. There's enough here to prick any heart to bring them to salvation in this one verse because the Holy Spirit's that powerful and the verse is that powerful. There's enough truth in this one verse to convict any heart, to bring people to the foot of the cross. Enough truth for a soul to see that they must be born again. I can't convince a person they must be born again. I've witnessed to atheists and Muslims and Hindus and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and materialists that just, uh, I don't care about anything, I just want to live and, and make money or live my life. I've witnessed to people and had conversations. I've had many of them at the end of it, not any more moved than when I started. Only God and the Holy Spirit can convict a heart. But I've also seen people radically change. And some of you are sitting out here, and I remember when you were unsaved. It's awesome to see you now. But there's enough here to bring anyone to that revelation, to open the eyes, to shine light. The Bible says uh, that God has given light to every man. The other verses in the scripture, they shed additional light on the beauty of the gospel and the state of the world and the mission of Jesus, but there's enough in this one verse to get a person running to the cross in this one verse. But the simple truth that God loved and that he gave and that he saves those that believe in him, that simple truth is powerful. Amen? That simple truth is powerful that just believing. Nicodemus passes to a different place when he just starts to believe what Jesus is saying. But then you've got to believe it and receive it and put your trust in it, right? But you first have to start. I mean, even when Nicodemus have this conversation, he has to start to say, okay, I really do need to be born. Don't know what that means, but I need it. Oh, you're, you're the solution to my problem. I need to give my life. I have to believe on everything you say. So once he starts to have that, then there's an opportunity now to be born again, to know what... To be, know what you must be, you know, it must be done, but to know that it has to be through the complete belief and surrender to Jesus. And we look at this last point this morning, the choice to believe. The choice to believe. Jesus goes on to say uh, in verse 17, for God, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Of course, the world was already condemned. That's why Jesus came. It was already under judgment. 
but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who did not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light. By the way, when I was um, unsaved, I grew up like going to church uh, as a kid, and I believed it all intellectually to be true. Matter of fact, I believed for certain that Jesus was who he said he was. I believe he died, I believe he rose from the dead. But I had never been changed. I had never been born again. And some of you have the same kind of testimony. Uh, so when I got old enough to make my own decisions, there was about five or six years, we never went to church. Me and my wife, uh, we were dating, and we, we weren't saved. I didn't want to go where light was shining. Does that make sense? I, did, I knew where the light was shining, at least in my subconscious at least. I just said, uh, I don't want to go there. Where can I go that feeds me? And it was never where the light was shining. When we finally got uh, invited, we would go, and we'd get convicted and not go for months again. Then we go, get convicted, not go for months again. Some of you online, might, this might be your story where God convicts you, and then you just run from the light. We say, well, I don't run to evil stuff. I don't go out and murder anyone. I just do little other sins. It's all darkness. It doesn't matter what your darkness is. Jesus doesn't say there's different kinds. He says there's darkness and there's light. You might choose a milder form of darkness if there is such a thing. But the bottom line is, once you realize, man, I need God, you run to the light instead of running away from the light. In the first incarnation mission of Jesus, it was not to condemn the world. It was not to come and condemn the world, even though the world's already guilty. But this will happen in his second coming. Do you guys understand this, right? Second coming, he is going to condemn the world. He's going to come and judge the world in righteousness. And you don't want to be opposed to him at that time. But his first coming was to seek and save us by his death and resurrection. That was the entire mission, to seek and save that which were lost by his death and resurrection. And praise God that until he returns as king, he is still seeking to save right now by the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to someone watching online or someone in this room. The Holy Spirit is still speaking, still seeking right now to save. Now, as we looked at last week and again this morning, he came to reveal our desperate condition, that we were dead and in darkness. Most people don't think that they're dead and in darkness. God has to show them that they're dead and in darkness. I had to be shown that. I had to be shown I was very much spiritually dead and in darkness, and I was trapped by the lust of this world and the lust of my own flesh. But God says, this is where you're at, but this is what I'm willing to do. And I see the nail-pierced hands of Jesus reaching out to me, and he's still reaching out to millions. We had to understand our desperate need, that we need salvation, that we need to be cleansed, that we need to be forgiven, that we need to be born again. God has to reveal that. But you have to believe that you need all this. Many don't. And again... We get all this from Jesus' very own testimony. We don't have to wonder if we have a desperate need. He's telling us we have a desperate need. Amen? He's like, you're in, if you are not believing in me, you are in darkness and you will be condemned. 
You do not have to like, Jesus not, don't you notice that Jesus is not mincing words here about the condition of the souls of men? That they're in darkness and they must believe in him. They must come to him. They must come to light. We understand the source of our salvation. It's Christ himself. He's the only one that saves and redeems. John 14, 6 makes this perfectly clear. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by, <clears throat> but by me. But Jesus warns us through his words to Nicodemus that this lustful world has a tremendous gravitational pull on us. Doesn't it? Even after you're saved. Even after you're saved. You know, Paul wrote in Romans 7.17 7, about the, the uh, he's talking about the struggle, even post-salvation, yeah, that there's still a sin nature that resides in you. Once you're saved, he said that sin is still housed in us. That's the Greek term. Sin in us is housed in us. But we're not under the dominion of it anymore if Jesus has come and saved us and rescued us. But he's the only one that can do it. He's the only way. And Jesus warns us here, again, this gravitational pull, it has this uh, dark, deceptive attractiveness. What Adam and Eve, they, they fell to this, didn't they? The, everything was, the sun was shining. That There was no darkness, so they couldn't see. With it. They, it was darkness, right? It's so deceptive. It looked like a sunny day. I don't know what fruit it was, whether it was a fig, an apple, a banana. It doesn't matter, but I'm saying that it was darkness and deception, even though the sun and the birds were chirping and the darkness was still darkness. See, Satan doesn't deceive people with a, I am inviting you to be a Satanist. It's not how he deceives the world. I've said many times, his sign says this way to heaven. That's what his sign says. And again and again, decade after decade, millions choose the temporary over the eternal. Passing pleasures over everlasting life. Sin over salvation. Satan's lies over God's truth. Lust instead of love. Millions upon millions even today. The attempt to be one's own God, mind you, you have many people attempt to be their own God. They have no power. They can't heal anybody. They can't save anybody. They can't raise the dead. They can't walk on water, and yet they consider themselves their own God. Is this not the height of arrogance. But this is mankind. Many people want to be their own God rather than surrender to the God of forgiveness and eternal life. Rather than choosing God, they choose darkness over light. They choose judgment over mercy. Why would we choose judgment over mercy? Those of you on one, why would we do that? Unbelief instead of belief. And ultimately, hell instead of heaven. I know that word isn't used much in America anymore unless it's a curse word. But it still exists. You see, if Jesus was having this same conversation with you, and he is because we just read the word of God, the red letter words, what would you do? Would you believe him and receive his eternal forgiveness and his love? Or would you say, I don't believe or maybe just say, not today. Not just yet. I'll take my chances. Or maybe some of you say, all religions are the same truth. 
Well, then Jesus is saying something in John 14, 6 that's flying in the face of that, isn't he? Any reason, any belief, or unbelief, I should say, any reason, any unbelief, any excuse in not believing and surrendering to Jesus is to choose darkness. Understand that Christ has already chosen us by his sacrificial death and given us the gospel. He's willing to choose anyone, whosoever. His death is enough for all people. Of which we can accept and believe, or we can doubt, delay, and reject. The premise of a choice goes way back. We're almost done. Listen closely to these last few points here. It goes way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Remember, Jesus has already quoted of Moses lifting up the serpent. Same Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says this, I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I've set before you what? Life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. And by the way, it's very interesting that many times when dad gets saved, the whole family gets saved. Not maybe immediately, but over time. We see this in the New Testament several times. Philippian jailer. Cornelius. Dad gets saved, the whole family gets saved. Baptized, drenched in the Holy Spirit, whole nine yards. But Moses was what? Moses was a foreshadow of Jesus. Moses was a sinner just like us that needed salvation. But he was also a type. He was a foreshadow of the Messiah that would come. And just as Moses was presenting either life or death, Jesus would become and be the greater Moses and he would present life and death in his outstretched hands. So this gospel had been foreshadowed by the law and the prophets well before. And to go back to Jesus' comparison of physical birth and spiritual rebirth, in our physical birth, none of us chose our parents, did you? None of us chose our parents. I didn't choose to sit. I was born in Annapolis, Maryland. I didn't have any choice in the matter. I didn't choose who my parents were. Neither did you. And aside from adoption, parents didn't choose us either. Aside from adoption, of course, God does adopt. He only adopts. And he chooses each person. But on our end, the second birth is a choice. I didn't choose to be born in Annapolis, Maryland, 1969. But I did choose to say yes to Jesus June 1995. I did choose there. See, once we're presented with the love and truth of Jesus, um, we're given that choice. And have you noticed that the offers of the world are so hollow, so flawed, so lacking? Just look at the people that supposedly have it all. They're the ones that live at the Betty Ford Clinic and have been married seven times and all of this other stuff. All the things the world has, it's just very hollow. It offers nothing, and it certainly can't extend anyone's life. All the fleeting satisfaction and happiness, none of the religious icons, by the way, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, none of them gave their lives on a cross for their followers. None of them. And even if they did, they couldn't raise themselves up, which Jesus did, right? So again, no matter how you look at it, those of you online, I'm just trying to show you, Jesus is saying, there is no other way but me. And anything else is certain death, darkness, destruction. 
but Jesus gave his life for us, how could we say no to such amazing gift? How? How could we say no to such amazing gift? In their book, um, Praying the Book of John, David Foster, and I can't remember the other gentleman's name, but I think I have it on the screen. Christianity is not just God's sin management program. It is a new life inside and out. Jesus' way of giving a broken, sinful person a new life and a hopeful future is to give the person a new heart, not more rules to break, which we invariably will. He gave us himself. Amen? He gave us his own life. The entire work is of Jesus. Revelation 1.5, to him who loved us, there it is again, loved us and washed us with his own blood. This is how it's done. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. How? This. You need to be washed by my blood. Lift it up. You've got to believe in me. This is the only applicable, uh, by the way, and this is only applicable if we believed in Jesus. We'll kind of close there. Pastor Greg Laurie has said for years, um, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his love for you. Because yes. nails couldn't stop the Son of God. He could rip them off anytime he wanted to. Amen? Nails didn't hold Jesus. It was his love for you and me. And so I just want to come to a close here, and maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're here in this room. Maybe you've heard the gospel. One of the problems, you can become inoculated to the gospel. You've heard it so many times that you really just kind of can articulate it, but you've never had an inward change. You've never been radically reborn of God. And so I can't convince a person of that. The Holy Spirit has to show them, no, no, you, you, you've not really come to put your faith and trust in me. Your trust is still in yourself. Nicodemus, remember, he was religious. He did a lot of good stuff. But Jesus said, your good stuff isn't good enough. You've got to put your faith and trust in me. You've got to believe in my righteousness, my salvation. And so I just want to uh, speak to those that, as we come to a close here, if there's anyone that God is speaking to your heart, that you would say to yourself, Lord, I've not given myself to you. I've trusted in myself. I've not had a brokenness about my sin. I've not really asked you to be my Lord and Savior. I've not come completely emptying myself and saying, Lord, save me. I don't know how to describe how God does this. I just know he does. He just convinces a person, you need me, you need my salvation, you need my son. I'm going to pray, and then if there's anyone that wants to give their heart and life to Jesus, I want to give that opportunity. Again, it's not me giving it. I'm just presenting it. God gives it. But Lord, we just thank you for this time in your word. We know that you're the only one that can save. You're the one that told us we need to be born again. And you're, Lord, you're the one that provides us a way of salvation through the cross, by your shed blood, the empty tomb. But Lord, you have to convince I can't convince a person. I couldn't even convince myself, but you convinced me, and I know that you've convinced many others in this room that we must be born again. 
And Lord, I thank you that when you do it, it's a radical change. It's a 180. You do a change in the heart. Lord, we no longer crave the world. All of a sudden, we love the things of God. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here listening online or in this room that has yet to give their heart and life to you, they've yet to uh, fall upon the rock and be broken, that today would be their day to call out and ask you, Lord, to save them by just putting their belief and trust in you. And with our heads bowed, I just want to make that appeal to anyone here online. If that's you, say, I, man, I've heard the gospel a lot of times. Uh, but something, the Holy Spirit's telling me I need to be born again. I, I want to be reborn today. Raise your hand. I, I want to pray with you. If there's anyone in this room, I want to be reborn. I want to give my life to Christ. I've said a sinner's prayer before, but I'm still in sin. I'm still in darkness. I still live for myself. I still have no desire for things of God. I still don't really even want to walk as a believer, but I want to, and I want today to be the day that God washes me from the inside out. Anyone at all, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. I'm not here to embarrass you. Jesus took all the embarrassment. Stripped and nailed to a cross, he took all the embarrassment. Ours is just to accept the gift. Anyone at all? Anyone online? I can't see if your hands are raised, but I want to pray with you if there's anyone at all. Just, it has to be your words. It has to be in your heart. Lord Jesus, pray along with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Forgive me for my rejection over the years, resistance, trying to be my own God. Lord, I'm coming to you this morning, this afternoon, asking that you would cleanse me of all my sins. Wash me. Forgive me. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Fill me and seal me with your Holy Spirit. For I've decided this day to choose life and light instead of darkness and death and put my faith and trust in you and to follow you this day forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you've done that online, I can't tell, send us a note at questions at calvarychapelrva.com calvarychapel, questions at calvarychapelrva.com Won't you stand as we close and worship?